You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we come before you once again entirely conscious. We pray by the power of your Spirit of our great need for you. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold Jesus in all of his glorious majesty this day, our reigning King, in whose name we pray. Amen. I invite you to look with me this morning at 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we see one of the saddest moments in the entirety of the Bible unfolding. That is, the people of Israel demand an earthly king. Leading up to this moment, Israel had suffered some military defeats at the hands of the Philistines. So in order to take things in hand, back in chapter 4, the elders of Israel thought, well, what we'll do in the next battle is we'll get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh And we'll bring it down into the midst of the battle. And if we do that, surely we can't lose. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? You've seen Indiana Jones, right? It's got the two-winged seraph on top, and and it's carried with rods to go through. And in it are the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna, amongst other things. And represents and symbolizes the presence of the Lord God himself. And so, they bring the Ark of the Covenant down, and it is met with disaster. And so with another threat upon them from the Philistines, and we'll see that in chapter 4, the elders decide on a different approach. In the first instance, they tried to manipulate God by bringing down the ark, by treating God as if he's some sort of lucky rabbit's foot. But in this instance, they bypass God altogether and decide to take control themselves. The problem, as the elders describe it, is that Samuel's too old and his sons are ill-behaved. And that's actually not too far from the truth. Samuel is getting to the end of his life and his sons are not any kind of son that you would want to assume the mantle. Furthermore, the Israelites have been through this with Eli. He was getting old and things didn't go so well and his sons were ill-behaved and they didn't want a repeat of that incident. But what they're asking for is something totally different. I mean, there's actually a great deal of stupidity to their request. Because what they don't want is for Samuel's sons to take over. And yet, what do they ask for? A system of government that is wholly reliant upon sons taking over for their fathers. But not just that. Up to this point, God would choose judges to rule Israel by his word. And so, if Israel needed a leader, God himself raised up the leader that was needed. It was God's choice, God's hand upon the leader. But with a king, you could do away with having to depend on God. You could get a king, and then they would have a son, and and then they would have a son, and so on and so forth. You were no longer reliant on God for that. And Samuel, when he hears this request, that he's old and his sons don't walk in his way, 
that they want a judge just like all the other nations. We read that this thing displeased Samuel. Well, I should say so. But actually, the Hebrew reads stronger. It says, Samuel saw this as an evil thing. Now, certainly, Samuel was upset that they wanted to get rid of him and replace him with the king. But God sets the record straight and says, no, no, no. This is not evil because they have rejected you, Samuel. For they have not rejected you. God says, they've rejected me as king over them. This is a rejection wholesale of God. And so, Samuel goes and tells all the words of the Lord to the people. And we only get the first part of the litany where Samuel says, look, if you want a king, this is what's going to happen. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he goes on with a number of other things of, is this really what you want? But then we get to verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They wouldn't be convinced that God ought to be their king. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord as if God couldn't hear himself. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. God does something confusing. He gives them what they want. An earthly king. This tragedy that takes place in 1 Samuel is not altogether different from the world in which we live in. We live in a world which I think it's pretty safe to say, at least in our own nation, that we are divided politically in a way that maybe we haven't been before. And I think the reason is because politics have become intensely personal. And like the Israelites of old, we've forgotten who's actually on the throne. We have the propensity on the one hand to sometimes vote for candidates who actually stand in opposition to the Christian faith. And on the other hand, to vote for those we think will help usher in the kingdom of God. Sometimes we might even conflate the two. Either way, the reason we get so upset about politics is because we cede to it an authority that is not theirs to have. Of course, it is important to vote. We ought to vote for honest men and women of integrity to hold office. But no matter how great or how terrible an elected official might be, They are simply a footnote in history of this world. Jesus is everything. Psalm 146 verse 3 reminds us, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. The Israelites had lost complete perspective as to who was actually in charge. And they thought, surely our lives would be better and our nation would be stronger 
If we could take control of the situation and make sure the person that we think needs to be in office is there. Now this was happening in the 11th century BC. I'd like to fast forward to another very similar political conversation that happened in 33 AD between Jesus and the Roman governor of Palestine, Pontius Pilate. This is John chapter 19. Pilate again entered his headquarters and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And then Pilate tries to release Jesus. But he says to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. You see, it's the same thing. The same thing that the Israelites were crying out for, that we have no king but Caesar. And in our day and age, we too say, we have no king but Caesar when we put our trust in horses and chariots. But there's a conversation that Jesus has with Pilate borders on being flippant. How can Jesus not answer the man who has the ability, according to himself, to let him live or, or to make him die? Well, one, Jesus knows historically what? That the Roman Empire is going to come to an end. Which would have been nonsensical to the people of Jesus' day. The Roman Empire had no horizon. It, it would go on forever. What do you mean? I cannot imagine existence without the Roman Empire. And yet kings and kingdoms pass away. And yet Jesus is forever. And that's just it. Jesus understood who he was as a reigning king who had reigned from a cross, who would be raised from the dead, and who now reigns on high. And that there's not a square inch of this world that he doesn't say, that's mine. He is king over all, and no one else. But going back to the tragedy in 1 Samuel 8, indeed it was an evil thing for the people to ask for a king. But once again, God takes what is meant for evil in the world and works it for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Saul would be made king, and then after Saul, his son-in-law David, and then from David's line would come into the world the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. God took that which was meant for ill and worked it for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And so this morning, 
as we live in a world that is awash with anxiety, as we live in our own lives that are awash with anxiety, the question is, who is Jesus to you? The answer to this question will determine your entire life. It will determine your emotional well-being, whether you are completely undone by politics or any other circumstance of life, whether that be emotionally, relationally, financially. It will determine who you are and how you relate to other people. It will determine your relationship to God the Father, and it will determine your eternal destiny. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Is he the reigning king? Is he the one that actually is able from his throne to instill in your hearts that peace which surpasses all understanding? In the midst of the storms of life, does your heart immediately recognize that Jesus is on the throne and reigning? And that his arm is never too short to save? No matter how dire the situation might be. This is difficult for all of us. And I'll tell a story I've told before, but it's a great story, so I'm going to tell it again. It's a story of my friend John, who wanted to visit me when I was in England, and he said he'd never been through the Houses of Parliament, and he wanted to do a tour, and it was kind of tricky. And I said, well, I can do you one better. I have a friend who's in the House of Lords. And so I called up my friend Brian Griffiths and said, my friend John's coming into town. Will you give him a tour? And he said, I'd love to. Absolutely. And so my friend John made his way to the gates of the, uh, uh, Westminster uh, and uh, asked his name. He gave his name and uh, the guard ushered him in and said, Lord Griffiths is waiting for you in the uh, uh, House of Lords dining room. And they had a lovely lunch and then Brian took him around all over the place. And they finally came to the chamber of the House of Lords and brilliant red. And there up on the days, the big platform is an immense throne, a chair for Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II. And what you need to know about John is he's a bit of a cheeky fellow. And so John looked at Lord Griffiths and handed him his camera and said, would you mind taking a picture of me up on the chair? I mean, Brian would like to have died. And John let him go for a little bit. But then all of a sudden, a smile flashed across John's face And Brian knew that it was a joke. Now, all of us in here, we gasp because that's a mortifying prospect that some man other than Elizabeth II would crawl up into that seat because that's her seat. No one else is allowed to go there. I mean, I guess you could go there, but you don't want to do that. And yet every single one of us allows the thrones of our hearts to be inhabited by someone other than its rightful owner the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Every day, we climb over the velvet ropes and we sit in the chair that doesn't belong to us. This morning, who is Jesus to you? Is he the rightful holder of the throne of your life? Is he king of the universe? Is he mighty to save? This is the king that Israel rejected. And we too in our own age have rejected. And yet if you want to know peace, peace in your hearts, peace in the world, the answer comes by bowing the knees of our hearts and worshiping this King Jesus. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.